Welcome to Ashland New Plays Festival Play for Keeps conversation series, where theater artists share stories, news, and insights into their work. Now let's meet today's guests. Hi, I'm Callie Kimball. I live on land of the Wabanaki Confederacy, known under the colonized name of Portland, Maine the other Portland, the first Portland. Um, and uh, I am a playwright and I've been at the Ashland New Plays Festival in 2017 with Sophonisba. And this year, 2020, I workshopped Perseverance with ANPF. And I am so excited to talk to my friend and fellow playwright, Carrie Bentley Quinn. Hi. I am, I'm a playwright also, a newly screenwriter, I'm working on it. Um, I am a winner of Ashland New Plays Festival this year, uh, and I was a finalist last year with my play, The Worst Mother in the World, which was recorded um, by ANPF for the uh, Play for Keeps podcast, so you can uh, download my play if you want to on their website, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to be talking to you. I mean, we talk all the time anyway, like everybody should know right off the bat that Callie and I've known each other forever and this is going to get girl talky for sure. But, um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, no, it's great. It's funny because, um, I, yeah, we, we talk on many platforms. We FaceTime, we text, we, Mm -hmm. we email, uh, we trade scripts and we have for each other just been, I feel like super sturdy during all sorts of playwriting challenges and joys and also like life challenges. So, yep, yep. yeah. <laughs> so there's really like nothing that's off limits. I feel like we have so much we could talk about besides oh. playwriting. Like there's a lot going on in the world right now. Um, but I feel like we should maybe, maybe stick to playwriting at first, just because I know that's why people are tuning in and, uh, that's who our host is. So like, um, you know, and, and I know we're kind of on our own for like how to navigate this, but like, I, you know, I've read so many of your plays, um, over the years in many different drafts and Mm -hmm. yeah, the play that you're doing that you won for is Hyannis. Mm hmm. And, uh, I, as we confirmed yesterday, I read draft two and you're now on draft nine. Is that right? 10, 10, 10 I'm on draft 10. This is draft, like this rehearsal draft is draft 10. Okay. So uh, like, you know, there's, there's, um, I feel like, you know, all the, you and I both write a lot and we write every play is, I think, very, very different from the other plays that we write. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. And so like, I'm wondering like for you and (laughs) if I ask too pointed a question and you're like, pass, like, that's fine. Um, Oh, you know, I'm an open book about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a big mouth. It gets me in trouble. I love it. I love it. Me too. Um, So like, I, you know, I think with Hyannis, I'm curious, like, you know, a, I mean, maybe you should do like a little blurb about like how you would just describe it. So that people know what the play is generally about. I feel like you would do a better job than, than I have that. But then like, what are you, what are you trying to accomplish with the play? Like what's the central question you're trying to answer for yourself? And what do you hope that audiences kind of walk away, um, you know, thinking newly about? Oof. That's a lot. Um, no, so the, okay, so we'll go with what we'll go. We'll start with what is the play about? 
Um, the play is about a family that lives in Hyannis on Cape Cod, um, where there's a very bad um, opioid epidemic that has hit Massachusetts, but especially the Cape very hard. And so they're welcoming home. Um, it's this woman, Michelle and her mother, Fran, and they run a like souvenir store where they sell like fudge and all that stuff. And they've owned the store forever. And Michelle's son, Tommy comes back from his second round of rehab for opioid addiction. Um, in his case, you know, pill started with pills and went to heroin. Um, and so, you know, as the play goes on, it really shows, not so much the story about the addict himself, although, I mean, he's certainly a part of it, a huge part of it, but it's more about how it's more focused on how his addiction kind of slowly dismantles the family, um, it, the family unit and their business. Um, and it, it sounds, it sounds depressing, but there's, there is a lot of humor in it. And, um, uh, cause my plays are always sad, funny. Um, if I try to write funny on purpose, it fails or I can be angry funny. Um, but oh, I can't yeah. be like purposefully funny. Yeah. You do. If angry, that makes sense. Yeah. You do angry funny better than like anyone. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's nice. I don't know about any, anyone, but yeah, I can do, I can do angry funny. It's a thing I can do. Um, but this is more, this is more like, you know, sad, funny, but it is funny. Um, I think, so I come from, I come from, a family with a lot of addiction. I mean, just alcohol, alcoholism, drug, I mean, you name it. It's in my family genes. You know, it's in, it was in my immediate family, um, both my parents. So I grew up with this and it's really funny because everybody's asked me, Oh, you haven't written the play about your family yet. And I'm just kind of like, but you know, I saw that play. <laughs> I lived that play. You know, I don't need to write that play. Right. Um, but I wanted to write about this family because this gave me a chance to incorporate a lot of that without being directly autobiographical. Right. So I was able to write this banter, especially the banter between Fran and Michelle, like at the end of the day is my mom and my grandmother's relationship. Like, yeah. Oh, and I know your grandmother was like a huge person in your life. Yeah. And so, but I didn't even realize it until we were in rehearsal for the reading for the first reading of the play. And I was like, holy shit. Like I wrote my mom and my grandmother's banter. Oh, wow. Like, and oh, stop being a martyr and all this, like <laughs> all this stuff they used to say to each other, but it was always like joking around mostly, you know? Um, and it's like, you know, I mean, you're a new Englander, right? It's those sturdy new England women, you know, and I just know that world. So, right. um, you know, and you know, I'm obsessed with the ocean. So, and it winds up in most of my plays. So I was like, no, Cape Cod, you know, and I've spent a lot of time there and it's a place that I really love. And I find it very interesting that there's so much despair, but everybody thinks of Cape Cod as this place where like rich people go on vacation. And yes, it is that, but it's also, uh, one of the biggest gay and lesbian communities in the country. And it's also very working in middle class. The people who live there year round are mostly not wealthy. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, I live, I live here in Maine and, um, you know, people, I think from away, which is what we call them, uh, from away. And by the way, I am always from away because I literally was not born here. Even though my family goes back for hundreds of years, uh, I will always be from away here. But, um, 
people who are from away think of Maine and they think of lighthouses and, you know, picturesque Mm -hmm. sort of quaint villages and antique shops. And it's like the majority of Maine, like it's a purple state. Uh, You know, it's a lot of, um, you know, I think, I think we, we tend to go democratic, but you know, there are some conservative values here. Uh, People hunt for survival for food. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a lot of blue collar, you know, very, robust working class here. And every person I know works multiple jobs. Like there are very few, um, you know, corporate and, and there is, there is a whole ecosystem of that. And they do tend to be on the coast where property taxes are higher. Home, home values are higher, but like the state is enormous. Uh, yeah, it's huge. The country of Ireland can fit inside of the state of Maine. People don't realize that. Um, and so, yeah, so I totally hear what you mean about like wanting to find the, um, the less polished version, the more accurate, truthful version of a place that's, that's sort of reflecting like what you're, what you're trying to accomplish in the play. Right. And I mean, you know, coastal towns are all going through it right now with climate change. That's, you know, impacting the, the economy of the fish, the fishermen, you know, tourism, it impacts everything. And I just, you know, there's has to be people who serve people in the restaurant, you know, there have to be people who run the bar, you know, people don't think about that when they think about class and a place. Um, but I think about, I think we both write about class. Definitely. For sure. And I feel like, you know, I think of your plays and I tend to think of Lucy Thurber when I think of your plays. And I, Mm. I, I was thinking about this and tell me what you think. I feel like like Lucy puts on, I'm, I've never met her. I'm talking as if I know her. Lucy does this with her plays, but you know, I love her work. She, uh, the plays I've seen of hers tend to put trauma on stage. Like it's, mm-hmm. it happens in front of you. Whereas I feel yes. like your plays, the trauma has already happened. And what we're witnessing is the lasting effects. Right. Well, first of all, thank you for that comparison since Lucy Thurber is one of my favorite playwrights. I actually fangirled out on her at a party. <laughs> I went, it was for the Relentless Awards. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, there was an open bar and like I met her and I just fangirled and I like had thought of what I wanted to say. And I probably sounded like a freaking idiot, but it was <laughs> fine because um, scarcity, um, Mike and I, my husband and I saw scarcity um, when it was when they had the Hill plays or the Hilltown plays. Yeah. Uh, here and I was in grad school, so I only had time to see two of them. I wanted to see all of them, but you know, I just you know, you went through it. Um, I just didn't have time. Um, and I saw scarcity, and it sh- just shook me to the bone because I there was so much in it that I recognized, even though they were even in a different class strata than my family. Like we were, you know, blue collar, but like had wor- you know middle class income at, from time to time. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I I I think especially with this play, I didn't want to write the addiction play, right? Where we see the person go downhill. Right. That's kind of a story that has already been told. Right. This is more about the quiet way it, if it affects everything, because once you're not, you're not acutely in crisis and the dust settles is when the cracks start to show. Yeah. Um, it's not a straight trajectory up or down. No. Also. No, that's the thing. I mean, all these like, you know, and I mean, there are good films and plays about addiction. I'm not saying there's not, but oftentimes, 
you know, we watched somebody, it's very exploitative. We watched someone stick a needle in their arm and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's very shocking to look at. Um, but that's the, you know, the daily reality of life for some of these people. And it's not for us to gape at and be like, Oh my God, you know how it can happen to any of us. Um, and at any time. And so I just didn't want to show that because I don't think that's, that's not the point. Yeah. For me, that's not the point. I mean, sure. It's like, it's, it's, you know, dramatically intoxicating to watch someone on a bender, you know, people like to watch extremes of human experience, but that's not what's interesting to me. Yeah. Well, the extremes are like so easy to grasp. It's like Mm -hmm. a middle ground. It's like the transitional moments, the invisible, you know, I feel like you and I both write about invisible people and invisible moments. Like we put things on stage that we haven't seen or we try to. We try to. Yes. Yeah. We both, we both try to do that. Um, yeah. I mean, I certainly think that's the case with perseverance. Oh, um, look at that. What a nice transition. <laughs> look at me go. I can do this. Um, yeah, no, but I think that's really the case because I feel like that play, um, well, it's so specifically about a place, you know, very well, you know, yeah. but it's also, um, I don't think anybody's done exactly what you did in that play. Oh, yeah. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing the res- response it's gotten. Um, cause I've written other historical dramas before. And so, um, just to let listeners know, if you don't know about it, perseverance is a play, I wrote that was actually commissioned to commemorate the centennial of women getting the right to vote. And so what I've done is I've put in, in a single setting, uh, which is a Grange hall in Maine. Um, a Grange hall is like a municipal building, a community gathering place. And I have two storylines. They're a hundred years apart. One in 1920, the year women got the vote. And in 2020, Uh, and so the 1920 storyline is centered around Perseverance Turner or Percy. She's the Perseverance that's the play is titled for. And she is a black school teacher, writer, and suffragist. Uh, and so she is trying to improve her life and the lives of her students. Um, and then the 2020 timeline features a white woman, uh, named Dawn, who is running for office. She's a school teacher. She's teaching her classes on Zoom now because it's like 2020 timeline, mm-hmm. pandemic, and she's running for state office. Uh, and she's not like, she's never done it before. She's not like a career politician. So she's sort of, you know, making missteps and figuring it out as she goes. And so I started writing this play. Was It was pre-pandemic, and the play centers around things I care about very much, uh, racial justice, um, education reform and women running for office. Right. Mm -hmm. Like all my plays have working women, uh, people who are, you know, working multiple jobs or Mm -hmm. they have goals. They want to change the world and they're rolling up their sleeves and doing it. So then the pandemic came along and the world premiere, which was scheduled for like right now, I would be in rehearsal right now, Mm -hmm. uh, got obviously postponed Um, and I already had references in the 1920 timeline to the influenza pandemic. Oh my God. Yeah. True. So that was already in there. So now I'm like, 
all right, I guess I just put some grace notes in it for the 2020 timeline about, oh, Dawn is now teaching her classes on Zoom. There's a pandemic. Um, you know, and, 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 oh, oh, look, there's racial unrest and the exact same issues in 2020, uh, you know, from, from 1920. And so there's like this continuum. And so it's like the most unintentionally topical play I have ever written. Seriously. Like there's something weird about zeitgeist and when you kind of hit it. Yeah. And there's no formula to know when that's going to happen or else we'd all be very, rich and famous, but, um, it's very, very weird when that happens. It is. Yeah. You can't try to do it. You can't try to write a, a play that, you know, will be received a certain way. Cause you just don't have control over that. Like all, all you can do is write what you care about. Um, and so I did that, but so it's, you know, now, I mean, I guess it'll be done at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like, like, well, like, I guess I'll have a play. I don't know. I don't know. Like we have no control know. over that right now. So it exists. And I'm so, so grateful both to Portland stage who commissioned it. Um, and, uh, Ashland new place festival because they did a workshop of it this summer and I got so much work done. So I feel like I was able to put a button on the script. Like, like, I don't think there's any more work for me to do on that play until, I get to a physical rehearsal where we're once again in a room together because that's when the play, you know, really gets on its feet and you start to kind of learn even more about it. So, um, so I'm very lucky that it's done, but at the same time, it's kind of heartbreaking that like I wrote this play that's so weirdly relevant and it, you know, there's like a woman running for office in the Mm -hmm. fall election of 2020. It like, it's happening right now. Like all of these things. But so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to the play. But again, I have no control. But um, what are your goals for your play and your workshop? Oh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny, because I had almost the same cast for both readings. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a couple coming back, but most of them are new people. And sometimes when you have a new set of actors, and you get fresh eyes on it, you can really learn something about it. Definitely. I'm also, my director and I are talking about how can we make the play feel alive in Zoom specifically? Um, Because I write a lot of things like overlapping dialogue and all this kind of stuff, which is a total nightmare on Zoom. Oh, it is. Um, For real. It's a total nightmare because it cuts off somebody else's audio and it sounds really stilted and, you know. So I'm just trying, I'm not going to change the play, like fundamentally change the play, because like you said, I'm at the point with this play where I just need to be in a rehearsal room with it. Yeah. Um, which is why it's such a bummer. I'm not going to Ashland and getting to be in a room, but you know, yeah. So, uh, you know, workshopping it again, you know, I'm just going to be looking for really surgical stuff at this point. Um, but I'm really, I, I think I'm excited though. Cause I think probably more people are going to see it now than would have if it had just been in the festival. Like my friends and family can watch it, you know. Totally. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, yeah, it's hard. I mean, you're, you're right. Like there, there are things that are not ideal about Zoom and it's also very fatiguing. Like, like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it was so great to be able to work on it, but it was also a 70 hour week and it was all on a screen and that was really hard. So it's so hard, 20 hours in rehearsal. And then I did two complete revisions, uh, like really deep revisions. I, 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 
really took advantage of the time, but man, it took me like a, a, at least a week to kind of recover from it. So the screen time is hard as, as the playwright, um, you know, it's always a challenge as you know, going to these things and you're, you're, um, you know, you show up to rehearsal, you're meeting with people before and after rehearsal, then you have to scurry off and, and go to the grocery store, get your meal, and then hole up for five hours writing into the middle of the night and then get up early and kind of do it all again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, you know, you just kind of, I, I did that in solitude this time. Um, but it was really useful and such a gift, such a gift, these, these, these things. And, and ANPF does such a good job. I'm so excited that you're doing this because it's one of the few uh, playwriting workshops that I, I, I tell all of my playwright friends to apply for because they've got such a like methodical, rigorous approach and they've just got everything figured out and they deeply sincerely care about the playwright's experience like do you have everything you need is there something unique about your you know what you're trying to do how can we help you and Kyle the artistic director is amazing I love he's so lovely I mean we've only spoken you know we spoke on zoom you know I'm sure we will again soon um but yeah everybody's been really lovely and even when I was doing because I recorded I also recorded a podcast interview kind of like this with, um, Marie Claire Erdenast, who was, uh, in the worst mother in the world podcast reading. Uh-huh. Um, and we kind of bantered and like basically every experience I had with them up until now has been so like they have their stuff together, Yeah, you know, like I didn't have to chase people down for things. There was no question of like, you know, what am I doing? Like what's going on? It was all very clear and very yeah. supportive, yeah. which is really great. They're the real. So that's nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely excited for it. Um, but like you said, you know, the zoom thing is really hard. It's really hard. It's, it's so much focus. And, you know, now if I watch a play, like when I watched your play, um, I, I stream it to my TV in my living room Mm -hmm. rather than sitting at a computer Yeah. because I, I can't do it because I sit, I sit in a computer chair all day. Right. Cause I'm working from home cause I have a day job cause most of us have day jobs and that's just the true story of life. Correct. Um, because we gotta, we gotta eat and have health insurance. Um, so, you know, I sit at a desk for, you know, from nine to five and then, you know, try to write or, but it's been, I mean, you, you and I have talked about this. It's, it's, it feels impossible to write right now. Yeah. It's really hard. It's really, it's hard. not impossible, but it's more impossible than it's been for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. So I want to say 12 things all at once, but yeah, like you and I have the friendship where we are so supportive of each other's work, but also we always have a free pass to like skip something because we we understand that like we're both working jobs, you know, juggling multiple, multiple things. And, and you just can't get butthurt about somebody missing a reading, right? But you showed up and you watched Perseverance and I'm really excited to see Hyannis. Well, of course I did. No, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you to see it. Um, cause yeah, cause obviously you haven't seen any of the readings because no. you're not in New York anymore. I know, but so I don't know. I was fully going to come visit you this fall or, or over, over this spring. I think Mike and I were planning to go up there in like June or something. Yeah, the world just we were talking about it. And then like the world just fell apart. Oh, it totally fell apart. It was funny because it was like the beginning of March. And I felt first of all, I felt like 
Cassandra, you know, Greek Cassandra, like I was like really worried for the world and nobody else like at my job or anything was like really tuned into the virus at all. And I was like, Oh my God. Like I just stopped. I started, like I started already kind of prepping my mind. I'm like, things are changing. And then I was supposed to go out to Ashland at the end of March. Like I want to say the 24th and at like, I think it was March 12th, Kyle called me and was like, Hey, I don't think we can do the workshop. I was like, that's cool. I'm already with you. Like, yeah. Like, I don't want to get on a plane. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, but I mean, everybody has a different relationship to the news and, you know, uh, their sense of their spidey sense for alarm. And, um, but yeah, it just pivoted instantly. Everything was just like completely changed. Hey, when is the date of your reading? Like not just for the listeners, uh-huh. but for my calendar. Hang on. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I don't know it by heart. Oh, that's okay. Uh, so let we, me just look at, oh, here we go. Here's the schedule. Okay. So the reading, the first one is going to be Thursday, October 22nd, 4 p.m. Pacific, which would make it 7 p.m. Eastern, correct? Okay. So that's uh, October, did you say 22nd? Yep. And then there's one on Saturday, October 24th at 7.30 p.m., PST, which is 10.30 p.m. EST. Okay. So I have to drink extra coffee that day because... Yeah, you do. I have to <laughs> watch my play for two hours and then do a talk back. So I'm going to be up much past my bedtime. Yes, I know. Since yeah. the pandemic has turned me into an old woman who goes to bed early. Um, yeah. Are you... So like, I feel like we can shift to like what is going on in the world right now. Like that's... Oh God. Like we're in a playwright Jesus. bubble, but like... For real, like, so you're sleeping. Are you sleeping? Because I, I wasn't sleeping for a while, and now I'm like, I want to go to bed at 9 p.m. I slept the first, like, four months of the pandemic like a champion mm-hmm. because I think it was just because I was, like, depressed. Um, <laughs> or I think I was also coming off a period where, you know this, I was feeling really, really, really burned out. Yeah. Um, and I had been hustle, hustle, hustle for years And I felt like I was like kept banging my head into a wall. Like I couldn't get where I wanted to go. I was really frustrated. Um, The schedule was starting to kill me, like the going to work and then going to see plays and getting home at midnight and then waking up to six to write. And then like I've been doing that for, you know, 15 years and I I got tired. Um, But then some stuff was starting to come together. I was supposed to have a production in LA in the fall and I was supposed to, you know, there was all these things that were supposed to happen that all just fell away. Um, so at first I, I was sleeping because kind of the thing I was worried about happening happened, which is that my husband got COVID. Um, so, um, and he's fine. He got it the first week in April. Um, he had a very mild case and mild in this case means he was deadly sick for like three weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, but he got over it. And after that, I just kind of was like, well, what else am I going to stay up at night about? Yeah. The worst happened. I remember that. Oh my God. That was so scary. So scary. And then you you didn't get it somehow. No. And I was, there was no kind of social distancing, right? Because I, I tried to sleep separately from him the first night and I couldn't do it because I was like checking if he was breathing, you know, it was like that kind of thing. Like, and we also, you can't social distance in a New York city apartment. Yeah. We have one bathroom. The jig is up. Like, I, what was I going to do? Bleach it every single time? Like, it's crazy. Right. You know, it, it just, so I just assumed I would get it. And then I never did. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I spent the next two months recovering from that. Um, 
And then we went, we rent. So we were supposed to go on vacation to Antigua for our 15th anniversary, which I was very excited about. And of course that was not going to happen. And so we took the money that we got refunded because I bought insurance for this trip. Thank God. I never take out the full insurance on a vacation ever, but something told me to do it. And I'm so glad I did because we got it all back. Um, and so we used that money to rent a house up in the Catskills for June. So we, we bolted. And the second that we left was when all of the Black Lives Matter, like protesting stuff was going down in the city. And there was like, uh, all of a sudden there was like a curfew and rioting and like altercations with the police, you know, uh, violently attacking protesters. And it was just, yeah, I felt really guilty, but I also was like, I needed to get out for a second because especially when the weather wasn't nice and we were under full lockdown, like the, the reason that you live in New York is not to be trapped in your tiny apartment all day. Right. Like most of us are home, like to sleep, you know, yeah. and to chill out on the weekend. But like, we're not, you know, we want to go do things and we, you couldn't do anything for yeah. like all of April and May. Yeah. Nothing, not a damn thing. Yep. And it was awful. Yeah. No, that was so smart of you. I, I remember when you were like, I think you had it for like a week or two and then you were like, we're going to see if we can rent it longer. And it just worked out that you were, you were able to really have some pressure and like, okay, I think guilt is such a thing right now because, okay. I don't think that the human mind is meant to understand so much suffering, like the scale of suffering right now. It's huge. All directions, you know, from people losing their jobs, losing their loved ones, uh, just fear and depression and addiction and suicide. And, you know, just the isolation that people are dealing with. And now of course it's been politicized the, this, Mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, efforts at social justice and Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, there's so much, you know, I mean, and, you know, I, I, it's astonishing that Black Lives Matter is in any way controversial to anyone because it's like at the basic level, they're asking to not be killed. And I'm like, that's a low bar. Can we <laughs> do that? Like, you know, know. So, I'm laughing because it's absurd. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Absurd. So yeah. like, you know, and so we're watching all this and participating to whatever degree we are in all of these, these, you know, and then there's the wildfires and it's like, every time you turn around, there's just, Oh my God, I know. And I mean, of course I was thinking of everybody in Ashland with this going on. I mean, it's just horrifying. And it's like, yeah, yo, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're no, you're good. No, I was just going to say that, um, uh, every writer I know is struggling right now. Um, with, producing new content. Um, and I, some people work differently and some people actually thrive in this kind of thing. I do not. Um, because what we are going through right now is, is sustained trauma. Yes. And it is very difficult because I know for myself, it's easier for me to write when I'm out of a situation and look back on it and kind of analyze it and then go in and, and write about it. I can't, first of all, there's going to be like 8 billion pandemic plays. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, we've been going through this long enough that, I mean, Oh it, yeah. It, you know, this is, and this is going to continue for at least another six months to a year, if not more. Yeah. Um, which is so overwhelming to think about. And I kind of have to chunk it down like, okay, 
baby step, get to November. Right. You know? And on top of this, we have this freaking election coming. Yes. And like, that's also traumatic because of what happened last time. Yeah. Um, so it's very difficult to create when you're living through this level of trauma that we've never dealt with before. Yeah. No, it is. Um, Carrie Fisher once said, I heard her say that she waits for terrible things to become funny before she writes about them. Um, <gasps> that's an amazing quote, right? Yeah. Yes. I feel like that's what I do too. But, um, I think, I don't know about you. I don't know that I'm ever going to want to see a pandemic play because like we're living it right now. Um, but I don't, you know, like this idea of, of guilt, like I'm, I'm aware, like I'm reading the news to an appropriate degree. I'm not weirdly, you know, online scrolling all the time, but I am up on, on what's happening to the degree that I can be. Um, but what I'm just so grateful, like I'm grateful. Like I had, like for all the stress and all of the, you know, two world premieres postponed and all this stuff, like I have a job. I have a home. Yeah. I, you know, my family is healthy and safe. I've had friends who've had it. Uh, and you know, some have recovered and some are struggling and, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I, I don't think anything is, is gained by being frozen with fear or guilt. Um, and it's, no. such, yeah. So, so I don't know. I think about that. I think about this a lot. It's sort of a question I have of like, I just don't think that we're meant to like, like, I think I can't, I can't understand this whole, like people politicizing it. And then the, you know, like, don't wear a mask and, you know, it's, it's all a hoax and all this. And it's like 60, 60 times of the people who we lost in nine 11 have now died from this in six months. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up. Cause well, you know that I was in the city on nine 11 yeah. and I actually started writing a play kind of about nine 11, but not really more like, but it took place in 2020. And now I have to go. Yeah. Like, well, there's two timelines. There's a 2001 timeline. There's a 2020 timeline. And now I have to go back and rethink some stuff, but I know that it's a bookend. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really funny. And it took me 19 years to even begin to start writing about it, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, we just went through that, but worse. I'm sorry. It was worse because it went on for longer. Yeah. Like 9-11. Yes, it was horrible. The aftermath of it was awful. Like people died. People are still dying from cancer and all that kind of stuff because they sent everybody back downtown before they were ready. Gee, I sense a theme here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Right. They made us go back to school. I went to school like three blocks from the World Trade Center, five blocks. I don't know. It wasn't very far. Um, They sent us back to school like nine days later. The air was sparkling with like particles. Yeah. And I bought a mask and people made fun of me. So this is really funny because we're going through the same thing in New York. I mean, I think I heard sirens every two minutes every day for like a month Mm -hmm. and we lost more. We lost 20, what they said, like 24,000 New Yorkers. Mm. We can't even start to think about that because we're just trying to get through the day. Right. So the grief when all of this is over, and I don't know over is is something like this ever over in your mind, you know, it's going to be huge. And I think that's going to be kind of what I wind up 
writing about at some point is the inability of this country to grieve. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine said that a lot of what had my friend, Peter is a very smart guy said that a lot of the stuff that is happening now, you can draw a straight line from the fact that the country was not allowed to grieve after nine 11 mm. and that we immediately went to war and politicized it instead of saying, Hey, let's grieve what happened. This is a terrible thing. And we need to do better going forward. We did the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, and so that's a concept that really fascinates me, but it's also very difficult to articulate right now. Yeah. Um, well, we just bummed everyone out. Um, I know, I know, but it's like, it's really it's just like, sorry how, guys. Like, no, but it, it, you know, it's just, how can it's you, the truth? How, it's the truth. Yeah. How can you have a conversation right now? Oh, by the way, happy birthday. Yesterday was your birthday. Oh, thank you. You're thank welcome. you. Yeah. Um, but you know, how can you have a conversation right now and just be like, la, 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 playwriting is wonderful. It's like, you can't, yeah. you know, we don't write our plays in a bubble. We are right no. in response to what is happening in the world and what we care about. Well, and the other thing is too, is that we're inspired by experiences mm-hmm. and we're not having them. Yeah. We're not having experiences like, yeah, sure. We'll go out to, I mean, New York got outdoor dining back and of course, it's like a moral quandary, but we've done it at the local places that we know that we want to stay open, that we know the staff and we support them. And that's a nice thing to do, but it's not going to a museum. It's not going to, you know, anywhere because everywhere you're hyper vigilant at all times. Like our adrenal systems must all be like burned out. Yeah. Because anytime you walk out the door, it's like a moral decision to do something. Yep. And it's complicated and having to do that much thinking every day. And on top of that, we're not experiencing things. We're not traveling. We're not getting together in groups. We're not having parties. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. That was my freaking outlook. Edit, please. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that was on. Oh, all right. Well, anyway, it made a noise in my headphones. Um, yeah, so we're not having experiences. So I don't have a lot to draw from right now. Yeah. You know, and so that makes it hard too. And I'm trying to, I'm writing a TV pilot you know, and I just did my outline and had a call with my managers and now I have to go back in and do it. And these are things, you know, me, I'm a workhorse. You are too. We both are. This is the kind of thing I could have knocked out in a couple of days. If I really just sat down, I find that I cannot get the deep focus Mm -hmm. that I used to be able to get into. Like I'd get into a zone and I, I can't, I can't do it as much. Yeah. Um, it's been better over the past, I'd say like month, I've been like, okay, I can sit down for an hour and write, but it's, it's so hard. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. How is that for you? Like, are you writing something new or are you doing something different or? Yeah. So, so like, um, first of all, I feel like mentioning, cause you mentioned your play. Like I wrote this play, this one play, it's like a 40 minute play. It's called May 39th. Have you, I don't know if you've read it. Yes, a very long time ago, though. Okay, so it takes yeah. place a thousand years in the future, the morning after a first date, and in this world, it's uh, people live in isolation in pods, and because uh, viruses. Oh, right. No, I remember this now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, everything is controlled, everything is regulated, and uh, and anyway, it's it's like I don't. It, but it's not like that, that. That play is suddenly relevant because. 
again, like, I don't think anybody really wants to see that play because we're living it right now. Right, right. But, um, but when you were talking about your play, that made me think of that. Yeah, I, so I have a larger question that I'm, I'm considering around playwriting because, you know, I've always written, um, I've always written, uh, you know, I don't want my plays to be all white casts, right? I've always mm-hmm. tried to write mm-hmm. scripts that sort of make it so you have to cast people of color. And that's because I care about those issues. And now, you know, I've written this play, Perseverance, that I feel really good about. Again, don't know if it'll ever be done. And now we're in this place where because of the pandemic, maybe, there is this hyper focus on the issue of, of black around black lives matter. And we also have, we see white American theater, Mm -hmm. uh, which if somebody is listening, they don't know it's a list of demands, 31 pages, uh, for, uh, from BIPOC, uh, about, about how the white supremacist structures are embedded in American theater at this time. And like drastic changes needed. And I agree with all of that. And I'm like, I want other people to lead. I want to hear other voices. And if, 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 if it's their time, like I, I don't know. I'm feeling, I kind of always thought I would get to a point in my playwriting career where if it hadn't really like taken off to a place where it can support me, which it has not, people are surprised to hear that playwriting is not incredibly lucrative, but it's not. (laughs) It's like, no, in no no way. But I always told myself, like, you know, if I get to a certain place and I have all this energy and all this, you know, purpose and drive, like, I want to point it towards something meaningful, like either start a nonprofit or work for a nonprofit or or change my writing. And I I do find that my writing is shifting um, that I am. I have been doing some consulting work for the last few years. And it's first it was just working with conflict resolution and communication. And, um, and I actually moved into right before the pandemic, I started a series of workshops on resilience and on Mm -hmm. working with people who had, um, who had had traumatic injuries. And it was amazing. It was like so meaningful. And I, I am actually working on, uh, nonfiction prose, just trying to kind of see what I have to offer that might, um, might be meaningful right now from, yeah. Yeah. From a perspective of like, Oh, we're all kind of suffering right now in different degrees. Yeah. Um, But you know, I'm, I'm very excited that, uh, so many institutions are stepping forward and embracing, uh, black lives matter. And we see white American theater. Are we saying whizzy what for that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we are. (laughs) Yeah. I Um, think it's like a Twitter acronym, but I don't think that's what we're saying. Um, I'm not sure though. Um, yeah, no, I think I'm kind of going through a similar thing, except I'm, I'm transitioning, not transitioning. Like I'm leaving playwriting. I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm a playwright. That's what I do. Um, I, but, but what is theater right now? Where is theater going to be in two years? Mm-hmm. We're all so used to like being beholden to this like submission cycle, you know, or every year at the same time, like all the opportunities open and you're like, I have to have a new play and I have to do this. And like that pressure for me has been taken away. Yep. And now I'm sitting here thinking about what, 
what kind of writing is going to make me happy and fulfilled and what my life going forward, like what can I do to bring more genuine fulfillment Mm -hmm. to my life? And I don't have the answers yet, but I know that I'm exploring different kinds of writing. I've been writing a little bit of prose too. Um, and but I'm just still like thinking about all this stuff and I don't know where I'm going to land. And usually I am the girl with a plan. I always have a plan Yeah. and I don't, I don't have a plan for this. Yeah. You know, I'm really just like day to day. I'm and like you said about being grateful, I am staggeringly grateful. I have a roof over my head. I have health insurance. I have a husband who's wonderful. I have, I have so much, you know, we have our health. I mean, we had health, you know, the thing with Mike was scary, but he's fine. And it's very difficult to like, feel sorry for myself. Although we all have our moments, I think. Um, but I also do need to figure out where my life is going because I think I grew up with such a scarcity mentality mm-hmm. that I'm trying to pivot away from that and be like, I have what I need and I've worked very hard to have what I need. Now, what do, what do I need for my fulfillment? Like, what do I need going forward? That's going to bring meaning. Cause I'm so used to just being like, okay, in the future, it will be good. I did this because X, you know, but now it's like thinking about the future. Like it's hard to think about the future right now. Yeah. Because we don't know what it's going to look like and it makes it impossible to have plans or <laughs> any of that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, and again, like not to Pollyanna anything right now, but there it's, it's an opportunity for invention or reinvention or totally questioning that is like, you know, I'm not, I'm not in rehearsal right now. So I'm, I have, you know, time to go on walks at the end of my day and cook things and think just, yep. you know, think and outline and what do I care about and where do I want to put my energy? And there's so much right now, uh, so many places to put that energy. And, you know, I've always, um, I just, I don't know, I guess, I guess my whole playwriting career, like I've always tried to advocate for, uh, playwrights of color, uh, like recommending them for awards and stuff and just introducing people and this and that. And I'm not saying that to get a cookie. It's just like, this is work that like, I love doing and I love bringing it back to ANPF. They have this new pass the pen initiative. Do you know about it? Yes. I just saw the reminder email about it and I still need to, um, send a name along, but yeah, it's just been crazy in my life. But yes, I think it's wonderful. Oh yeah. It's so great because, you know, uh, you know, something that's always been problematic in my mind is the, there aren't really like on ramps. Like there's, there, there are gestures that an institution might make, but in terms of actual access, it's, you need somebody advocating for you. You need somebody to introduce you to the opportunities. You need the introductions. You need, you know, and it's just, it, none of it's hard. Like it doesn't take a long time to write an email or to reach out and say, Hey, nope. know about this opportunity or, Hey, can I recommend you for something? Um, you know, I, so like, I don't know, maybe like every three weeks, every other week, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I do something like that. And that's just always been something I've always done quietly. Um, and I think that, um, you know, amplifying, amplifying those voices. Like I want that. I want that world where it's, 
you know, more I'm like, I know the white narrative. Like I know that story, you know? Yes. We uh, definitely know that story. Yeah. But like, I mean, I'm thinking of like, um, Don Gwen, you know, like his plays, Vietnamese American, um, you know, who I know is like super tight buddy with you. I love Don. Yeah. I love Don's him. one of my very, very dear friends. Yes. Love his plays. Um, you know, I think of like Migdalia Cruz, like, I don't know why she's not done more. She's brilliant and amazing and highly theatrical and, um, you know, Robert O'Hara, Dominique Moriso, like just, there's so many exciting American voices right now. And I don't know. I just want to like, you know, that what's that phrase lead, follow, or get out of the way. It's like, I just yeah. figure out like where I make sense, um, and, and how to listen and amplify the work of other people. So I just love Kyle. I love that a ANPF is doing this because past the pen seems like a meaningful step. It's not just lip service. It's like, this is a, a, a well thought out program to build those on ramps into, um, into these institutions. Absolutely. And you know, all of this is very long overdue, but I, it, like you said, it is really heartening that, you know, organizations have stepped up. Um, but this, yeah, it does seem like everything else that they do, it seems very well thought out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, no, I definitely have someone in mind. I just have to, I just have to reach out to them. Um, but, um, yeah, I've all, I've just been dealing with a lot the past few weeks and I'm just like, "Ah, I don't know what you're going on. Yeah. Whatever are you talking about? Um, (laughs) but you know, it's, it's one of those things where it gives me a little bit of hope. And I, I do think that when theater comes back, cause it will come back. Theater has been around since humans could, you know, express themselves, you know, it's been around forever. Um, it'll come back. And I think that a lot of it is going to wind up being scrappy, self-producing storefront stuff. And I think it could be really exciting, but it's also kind of a young person's game. You know, mm-hmm. um, I self-produced and I I'm exhausted now even thinking about it. Cause I am not 25 anymore. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so, but it, I think it's going to be exciting. And I think, you know, the young people coming of age now are really going to take charge Yeah, and it's going to be much more inclusive, um, and diverse. Um, and you know, with, with everything, with sexuality, with gender expression, with race, with, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be much more diverse. I, I, there's no question in my mind. Yeah. But it will take a while. Yes. Well, I feel like, I feel like I want to, I want to bring up something that, um, you told me about years ago that is like our mantra, you know, I think you know where this Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like whenever one of us like pings each other on, I am like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Should I do this thing? Should I try for this thing? And the other person write back, writes back the acronym WWAWDD. And that means what would a white dude do? There you go. No, I was really thinking this because like whenever we were talking about like, oh, I need to ask someone for a rec letter and we get all like timid, like, oh, I don't want to bother that, you know, because it's, it's, it's the way we were raised yep. as women and say, you don't be too loud and don't annoy people. And even though, you know, I'm a flaming feminist, I still get very like gun shy about asking people for things, about asking for favors, submitting to some, something that I think is too fancy Yep. you know, or something like that. And I mean, I don't 
really do that anymore. I'm kind of like, I'm doing it anyway, yep. but I kind of had to come up with that mantra. Cause I'm like, would Mamet be afraid to ask for a rec letter? No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like Neil LeBute, like, should I email this person? Like, no, it's, you know, yeah. and I know white dude is sort of, you know, a, a catch all term, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what would a white dude do? Like get, a little, get the confidence and, you know, they don't think about that kind of thing. There's this ease that they move through the world that they just sort of don't agonize over. Should I, should I do this thing? I don't yeah. know. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm good enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, they don't do that. They just. No. And they already have a leg up too. Right. Yeah. So it's less struggle bus because of course, you know, there are women and, you know, women identifying people who have made a, a misstep of getting on someone's bad side. And then all of a sudden you don't hear from them again. Yeah. And it's usually for some dumb thing, but it's scary because we know that that was how things were. And I think that's changing yeah. with the Me Too movement and people speaking out um, about, you know, that was a whole big thing two years ago was, you know, the rot that was inside some organizations with known sexual harassers who still kept their jobs. Um, and so it's been this real reckoning and I feel like societally we're in a huge reckoning right now and I don't know what's going to happen. I know one election isn't going to fix it, but it certainly won't help if it goes wrong and uh, we just have a lot to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think about the election and, you know, there's, there's, there are two possible outcomes. And like, if, if, if the undesired outcome happens, all I can hope is that we do flip the Senate because then we will at least have some control over what's going on. Um, Agreed. I do believe we will survive, but I, I feel that we are, you know, in a, if we're not already there, we're headed toward fascism. Um, yeah, I think we're pretty much there. I think we're there too. I think we're pretty much there. And it's really weird. It really is like whenever people talk about Nazi Germany and they're all, I mean, not that it's that bad yet, but there are certainly parallels. Um, people talk about Nazi, like, Oh, how did the German people, like, how did this happen? And it's like, we've watched it happen. Yeah. And it's just like the frog in the pot of boiling water. It's like, you don't realize it's happening until all of a sudden you're like, oh, the water's boiling. Yeah. I mean, we're watching it. It's happening right now. It's like, you know, it depends on what news you're being, you're consuming, but like there are people who are in cages right now on the border. There are people who are suffering Mm -hmm. every minute. Uh, And it's, yeah. Okay. So we're turning this into a political uh, podcast. But that's okay. I'll, it, it's, it's part of playwriting. Like you can't, you have to be a, you're a citizen, you're a citizen and a human being. And I guess, yeah, I guess a question that I'd want to ask that maybe we should kind of close on is what are you doing for yourself right now to nurture your artist, to nurture your writer self? Yeah. In the um, middle of all this crazy. <laughs> um, I, I have started to hope again. So I, I, uh, have kind of been through some difficult challenges in the last few years and only to kind of emerge into the pandemic. And I, uh, it's just been a slog, a bit of a slog. And I found myself hoping, uh, 
recently in the last, in the last few weeks. And in the, which sounds crazy because of what's all that's going on, but, um, I have energy. I have optimism. I believe in the essential goodness of people. Um, I believe that we are, um, there are many of us that, uh, we are not maybe as loud as the people who are, um, who believe things that we don't, that you and I don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I, I am optimistic and I believe that we will get through this, but I think it could be painful. So what am I doing is I'm allowing myself to hope and I am going on walks and I am sleeping and I am, um, reading. I'm just reading for pleasure. Uh, and just letting myself kind of relax a little bit in the middle of it. Like I'm doing, I'm fine that like, if I do little tiny things that I do have control over, it helps me deal with all of the things that I don't have control over right now. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've been through several like false starts with like, I'm going to do this thing and then I don't do it. Um, cause I've just been so scattered and unfocused, but I think the thing that's really kept me having something consistent has been exercise. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's great. I've been working out pretty much every day, um, in my house for it, this program on YouTube called fitness blender, which is amazing. So if anybody wants to do an at home workout, they're great. I'm like evangelical about them and I've been doing their workout videos for five years, but it has been the thing that I have been the most disciplined about. And at least cause I haven't been disciplined about writing. I haven't been disciplined about, you know, uh, diet, you know, but I have been disciplined with exercise. And I think that's kept me from going crazy and it gives me something to get, you know, get the stress out a little bit. Yeah, totally. Um, and up until summer, I was cooking a ton. Mm -hmm. Um, I hate cooking in the summer because it's hot. Um, but that was really nice too. It's just, I had, I didn't have control over a lot, but I could make a good pasta, you know? Yeah. And so I'm still trying to do those things. I'm definitely back to reading for pleasure more. Um, and I'm getting back into listening to music. I couldn't really listen to music um, for some reason. Like I couldn't focus on it. And that was really weird since I'm a very avid music listener. And it's a lot of where I get my inspiration for my work from. And I felt very like separated from it. It was very strange, but I'm getting, I'm getting back to it now. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I just think that anything that requires emotional attention is tricky. Yeah, it is. It is. I did something like I, I watch. I, yeah, I'm kind of consuming uh, like pop culture because like I just never I'm one of those people like I have a television, but I never turn it on. Um, and I don't say that like, oh, that's, that's, I'm so smart. I don't watch television, but like, I, I would love to watch television. And so like, I've, I've watched like Love Island and I, oh yeah, girl, the way I'm on right now, it's such trash. I love it is 90 day fiance. Okay. I don't know. It is, okay. So the premise is <laughs> the, for this, our last minute of this podcast, this is awesome. The premise is that, um, these people bring over their fiance on a K-1 visa from another country. And then they have 30 days to get married unless if not, they have to go back. Okay. It is, it's, <laughs> it's a TLC show. It is absolute trash. And yeah. I love it. I've watched four seasons of it already. It's just garbage. And I, it's amazing. 
But like, you know, we say that we say, is it garbage? But like, is it really garbage? It's people. It's people's oh, I say garbage very affectionately. But <laughs> fascinating, right? It and is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm like letting myself, like I read some novel from 2000 that was like, it was writing about a woman who runs a dot-com business, you know, like, I'm, <laughs> it's just like silly, like, um, like stuff. But on silly, I do feel like we should give a shout out to the wonderful Tina Howe, who actually is responsible for us knowing each other. That is true. So yeah, Callie and I, well, you and I met on Twitter though, I think before, before, but then you went into the, so Callie and I both went to Hunter college for our MFA and worked with the wonderful, fabulous, amazing Tina Howe. Um, and that was when you and I first had lunch was when I was like, Hey, can I pick your brain about the program? And the rest is history. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but yes, Tina's, I have to call her. That reminds me, I've got to call Tina. Um, but yeah, she's my fairy godmother and I love her. Yes, she's wonderful. She was like, you know, playwriting is is kind of gr- grueling <laughs> and I know. She made it fun. She just brought sparkle and magic. And, and junk food. Junk food and mystery. And fun pens and stickers. Like, I don't know. I love it. Yeah, it was like having it was like having a brilliant professor and a kindergarten teacher like at the same time. <laughs> that is very accurate. Very because if you were tired and cranky, she'd be like, "Here, I brought you a snack." <laughs> you know, you have your snack time, and we get to play with toys, and then go back to to, to learning. But um, yeah, she's yeah. she's amazing. She is. Well, Carrie, I'm so glad that we got to do this. And, and me too. Yeah. Thanks for, it was fun. It's always great talking to you. And I hope you have an amazing time at the festival with ANPF. Cause I know I, I'm super excited. Yeah. It's going to be great. It's I can't be. wait. Yeah. All right, girl. I'll talk to you later. All righty. Bye. Okay. Bye. This has been a presentation of Ashland New Plays Festival. Our podcast is produced by Andy Neal and Cara Quinn-Lewis with written content edited by Carol Florian. To learn more about AMPF and how you can support new plays, visit us at ashlandnewplays.org on the web or at ashlandnewplays on social media. If you like what you heard, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.